welcome back to the No Walls podcast. This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. So my moving moment is about a court hearing that took place back in 2014. Back then, I represented a Sudanese man who had really been failed by the system, failed by the Home Office and previous lawyers. He was in long-term immigration detention and his asylum claim had been refused several times and the Home Office were trying to remove him back to Sudan. The hearing was at the Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand and although most of the listeners will know that that court's not a criminal court, they have these cells underground and that's where we met AA, who I'm going to refer to as my client, prior to the hearing. And The cells were these really old and claustrophobic cells and I remember the barrister prior to the hearing giving a really kind of balanced but really bleak assessment of what would happen at the hearing and AA seemed pretty resigned to another defeat. And this case was all about whether or not he was unlawfully detained and whether or not his asylum claim was well-founded. So we went into court and I sat down behind counsel, as a solicitor usually does, and AA, who was detained at the time, was brought out, you know, made to look like a criminal in cuffs, surrounded by these really miserable detention guards. You can imagine another outside at the back of the building in a van with the engine on waiting for them to take him back to detention. And the Home Office were represented by counsel. I remember them robustly waving previous decisions in the air, saying this was all a bit of a waste of time, refusing to engage with the evidence that was actually relevant to this hearing. And the judge heard what Al Barris had to say. And yeah, I'll never forget this moment. A senior judge of the Court of Appeal in deciding whether the case should proceed. And this was Lord Justice Sullivan. And I dug out the transcript because I, was, I always like looking back at this transcript, given the context. And what he said, having heard the arguments, was this. He says, I simply do not see anywhere where these very, it seems to me, to be quite powerful indications of torture. They simply do not seem to be addressed at all by the Home Office. Simply referring to earlier immigration decisions where there was not any medical evidence almost begs the question because he made allegations of torture. One of the reasons why he might not have been credible was because there was absolutely no medical evidence to support the fact that he had been tortured. The wounds, the scars, whether or not they are consistent or highly consistent, I do not know what the terminology is with torture. This is not just an isolated scar, for heaven's sake. There are any number of scars which are either consistent or highly consistent. I just simply cannot see how you can sensibly and bluntly reject this without actually looking at it. This has not been looked at. And he granted permission that day. And AA, for the first time in, I think, over 10 years from when he claimed asylum, was finally heard. His 200-plus scars all over his body from persecution in Sudan were finally being noticed. And he sobbed at the back of the court when he heard the judge speak in those terms. And he went on to win his case, and the unlawful detention case and his asylum case. And he's a refugee now, and he's studying law. But I'll never forget that court hearing. At the end of the day, this is an agreement where the UK is trying to completely shift its responsibilities and asylum obligations onto Rwanda, 6,000 kilometres away, out of sight and out of mind. So regardless of the exceptions that may or may not be forthcoming to the policy, at its core, this strategy and this arrangement 
is the UK acting very likely in breach of its obligations to provide protection to asylum seekers that arrive at its shores? Rather than ensuring that it provides them with protection, it is simply pushing them onto someone else. And that in and of itself is problematic, regardless of any exceptions. Yeah, it's it's the out of sight and out of mind that really concerns us, right? Because they'll dump these refugees in Rwanda and then it will be out of sight because of what you've said about the repression in relation to reporting, journalism, freedom of expression. And we won't really know other than through organisations such as yourself as to what really is going on. And by then, it may be too late for for many, many refugees who will, will have already suffered from grave abuses of human rights. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, one of the most concerning things about this policy is it's not simply that they're sent to Rwanda for processing and that they then come back to the UK. The UK is entirely washing its hands of people seeking protection at its shores who have no other choice than to come by boat or by lorry or feel compelled to do so. And it says that you either stay in Rwanda and Rwanda will either deport you or handle your rejected case or grant you status there and you can stay there. They'll never get the chance to be provided protection in the UK under this arrangement. And what what do you know about previous attempts by other other states to try and enforce these sort of agreements and how that's panned out? Because I know that there's been there's been widespread criticism of, of what the UK plans on doing, but I, I know that the UK isn't the first to try this. Yes, so the UK's arrangement with Rwanda is modelled off Australia's offshore regime on Nauru and Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. And indeed, Australia's regime was modelled off the US's processing centre for, for Haitian asylum seekers on Guantanamo Bay. And we know from the Australian regime that this has caused more than eight years of immense human suffering. 12 people have died since the policy began in 2013 due to suicide, medical neglect. So men, women and children have suffered inhumane treatment, as I mentioned, medical neglect and years of indefinite detention, which led to suicides and an epidemic of self-harm. There were also widespread violations against women, including sexual assault, harassment, attempted rape, and all of this was was culminating in severe violations of the right to life, right to be free from torture, inhumane, degrading treatment, and amounted to a violation of arbitrary detention. And so it's just absolutely shocking and, and very inhumane that the UK has decided to follow in this path when we know that Australia's regime failed so astronomically. It had incredibly exorbitant costs and it did not have the desired effect of stopping boat crossings. Do you think gender-based violence is something that is well or, or not well understood by the Home Office? What's your thoughts on that? Oh, no, we don't think they do understand it. That's why we thought we really fighting the new nationality and borders bill. Our focus was on cross that was not recognizing gender is one thing, is one reason you, you seek asylum. It means they have absolutely no understanding, simple understanding of it. That's because of that you are more subject to violence than men. I'm sorry to say that. And that it can be a reason that you need protection. That you need someone who understands. So the Home Office, they, the, we don't think they have people enough, trained enough in this area. And when women go to the interviews to talk about that, it's very challenging when you are talking to anyone who has no clue of what is gender-based violence is. 
who has no empathy. Sometimes you just want to talk maybe to another woman. You want to talk to another woman maybe who looks like you. Maybe that's what we're talking about even about lived experience. Maybe someone who has the same experience who can be so empathetic. So they they don't, and that's one of the things we have, we have been challenging a lot. We through the our campaign we worked very closely with the women in the gender based violence sector. They signed our letters. They really helped us writing briefings and all that because together working together was going to have the biggest impact. They have that understanding and we have women with that lived experience and together we managed to write briefing and letters to the home office to explain how important the gender-based violence has to be recognized. It's a reason of seeking protection. And once you, you, you seek protection, how are you supported through the process of seeking asylum? In a different way and not just a general interview. And also, Mainly one key area, they want people to give evidence straight away. When you have been through gender-based violence, you need a bit of time of healing. You need time to be mentally strong, to be able to speak about it. Expecting you to come in as an asylum seeker who has been subject to the most horrendous violence and straight away talk about it, give details, give evidence, is living in another world. And I'm sure with the women you work with, all that progress that they might have made with speaking up and, and finally feeling empowered to be able to talk about it, to then go to a home office interview and to be asked questions where their nature is inherently self-blaming or disbelieving, all that progress can just go in a flash. That's, that's the danger, yeah. It's totally re-traumatising. I really think that the impact of those kind of questions can be really long-lasting on people. I think the Home Office needs to properly understand research-informed impact of trauma on survivors. Exactly. Violence and that accordingly. Yeah, and build partnership with organisations that are experts in that area, allow them to really support them, deliver training to the staff, recruit staff who have the experience of doing that, and treat people with uh, dignity. One thing that you said just now was that, that there's an element of you feeling like sometimes you had to you had to carry yourself differently mm. um, and that, that, that's something that even though I'm, I'm not a barrister and I'm a solicitor that's something that resonates with me yeah. as well not, not just necessarily in terms of carrying myself but also just sometimes the, the way that I sound right I mean if I'm in certain rooms now I'll, I'll make a conscious effort to to pronounce my t's and and refrain from saying certain words that that, that I would say if I was with people that I felt inherently comfortable with that, that, that I grew up with so what, what, what is it that you meant when you said you had to carry yourself differently? Was there anything in particular you felt that you had to change? I mean, because of the way that I speak generally, um, everyone who's close to me thinks that I sound very posh and lots of people have asked me if I went to private school. So I've kind of felt less the pressure to change the way that I speak. Some of the words that I use and some of the things I talk about, yeah, of course, uh, you know, I'm very mindful when I'm at work about the people I have certain conversations with, you know, to an extent, that's a that's something that we all that we all encounter. But you know, there is something about being the only black person in a room that makes you feel hyper visible and makes you or certainly makes you know, has made me feel hyper visible. And has certainly made me feel like if I if I get something wrong, if I put a foot in the wrong place, that's going to be looked at very differently than than you know the way it might look 
you know, coming from someone who has had a very different life experience to mine. I think what this Home Secretary has done, both in her rhetoric and her lawmaking and her policymaking, is actually incredibly, incredibly dangerous. It's like nothing I've actually seen before in the work that I've done campaigning for human rights across a whole range of issues for many, many years now. What she has done is she's put lawyers and the entire kind of system which is held up by the rule of law, access to justice, principles and values that are meant to be fundamental to the UK and have been for centuries. She's put those principles and those values in the crosshairs. Uh, And she has quite literally whipped up hatred towards lawyers and towards those that are seeking to defend the human rights of some of the most vulnerable people that we have on our shores. And it's really part of a piece, I think. We're currently seeing this government, you know, really demean themselves by trying to argue the indefensible, by trying to pretend that law breaking at the highest levels isn't a problem. This has never really happened before in our democracy. Our constitution really rests on conventions in many ways and on gentlemen's agreements. But what happens when all the so-called gentlemen leave the room and you have government ministers, including the Home Secretary, with this agenda, really seeking to tear up the rule of law and our constitutional foundations? I think one of the things that I find most shocking and shameless about her attacks on lawyers and people that support people in the immigration system is the extent to which she actually gaslights. She accuses people of doing the things that she's actually doing with her policies and with her lawmaking. She's actually holding up a broken system. She's making a broken system worse by doubling down with the same kind of policies that we've seen successive governments introduce now for the past two decades. It's this policymaking that is breaking the system, the inability or the unwillingness to get a grip of an asylum backlog that is just getting longer and longer and longer. The knock-on effects being that asylum seekers are being badly mistreated in quasi-detention centres, in detention centres, in hotels. uh, And we've seen some really horrendous, harmful outcomes as a result. The things that she actually accuses us of are things that she in her department is actually guilty of. But it's a it's a really dangerous tactic. And it's obviously had incredibly dangerous results for lawyers and campaigners that are doing this work. You know, I know so many organisations that have put in panic alarms that have had to up their security because of this constant, divisive and and hate fueling rhetoric.